in today's planning environment, um, I'm a bit concerned because there is so much effort made and given to create a complex uh, game plan or strategy to adhere to somebody's notion of what uh, a good plan looks like and not. It seeks to to determine a perfect plan uh, with everything in focus, with everything predictable, with everything logical. Okay, so there's a couple of things that I experienced, uh, which none of which was included in my previous statement. Okay, I found that in order to get a game plan that could actually be realized in the real world, you had to keep it simple. Okay, it has to be simple for some reason. Today, unless something is complicated, people don't think it's right. And I don't know why that is, but maybe we've been mesmerized by formula and algorithms and models, et cetera, et cetera. But in my experience, uh, if you want a successful strategy or game plan, you have to be focused on execution. And the way to do that, first of all, is you have to keep it simple. And I'm going to unfold my solution to simplicity as we go through the presentation. Rather than spend, uh, you know, copious amount of times trying to perfect the direction or the end game, um, my experience is that we just need to get it just about right. I mean, I coined this expression called let's head west. And the whole idea behind a head west strategy approach is to say, well, you know, we're going to head west. And as we execute and learn from on the basis of the results that we get, we'll discover on the journey, whether we should be in Vancouver or the whether we should be in Seattle. But it's not really helpful to spend another 13 weeks up front trying to figure that out, I guess is my point. And so the execution process informs the efficacy of the direction, and it, it, it actually puts the end game more and more in focus as you go along. Now, let me tell you, that is completely you know, out of context with traditional planning. Okay, that actually has this this sort of backup belief that you can perfect something that is imperfect. I mean, how can you build a perfect plan in a world that's imperfect? Anybody? I mean, I don't get that. Never did get it. It's not possible. How can you get a perfect plan in a world that changes every nanosecond? Pretty hard. Okay, how can you get a plan when the people working in the business, okay, are really are really struggling every day to make it work? You need some help. And so one way of doing that is to, as I say on the slide, you got to loosen up on the direction piece and you got to tighten up on the execution piece. So let me just explain just a little bit on that. It says if you have 100 hours available to develop a plan for your business, okay, 20% of that should be figuring out what West looks like. 20% of that time should be spent on getting a plan that is just about right. And you have to be comfortable, okay, with imprecision. You have to be comfortable with imperfection because that's the world that we're in. You can't make perfect an imperfect set of circumstances that are hitting you every day. But what you can do, because you control, control this, is you can spend 80% of your time on something that maybe you have more control over. Okay, you with me? The execution piece is what you have more control over. You really don't have that much control on the direction because that direction, as I say, right, is, is going to be changed, is going to be impacted. 
by the kind of events that, and I call them body blows that, that, that hit your business. So when you think about your strategy, I want you to think about, I'm going to have to execute this, having it on paper in a nice ironed fashion is absolutely useless unless you can actually take it to the field and, and execution is key. Okay. So with, with that in mind and the fact that, that we need a game plan to execute. And by the way, this is real for me because when I was asked to take over this, this internet company, okay, I had to figure out uh, and create a, a strategic planning process that allowed me to e- execute. Like I did like everybody else did. Okay. I went out and I look, I, I had conversations with strategic planning firms like you wouldn't believe. And I, I asked the questions about, you know, how long was it going to take? You know, what was the focus? How, what was the process? Um, what kind of costs were involved? And I concluded that none of them would be helpful. And so it forced me into creating a strategic game plan around what I just discussed on the previous slide, which is the need to execute in the field if you want to perform. And I want to make the point here. I am not a believer that performance is a function of intellect. Performance is a function of actually doing stuff in the field, getting dirty with competitors, hungry competitors, and and customers who are exercising more power than ever before. So I had to create a a new um, game planning approach. I call this strategic game plan. This is what it looks like. It's You guys, it's really simple. You would not believe how simple this is. And I've worked with clients besides myself for a long time to actually test the validity of this to make sure that in fact it was as as it works as well with others as it worked for me. And so the idea here is you could create your strategic game plan and actually you can do this in 48 hours. I want to make that point. Okay, this is not a process that takes, you know, 5 months uh at a cost of 50 50 70 $100,000. This is a process that literally with the use of an executive team takes place over 48 hours by answering three simple questions. The first question is how big do you want to be? And we're going to unfold each of these questions in subsequent slides. The second question is who do you want to serve? And the third question is how will you compete and win? So this this process is literally three questions. That's all. Simple, simple, simple. So let's take a look at each of these um, in in some detail. So let's take a look at exactly what we mean by how big. All right. So let's first of all, I want to contrast this with traditional planning. The traditional planning approach is to create your strategy, right, and then figure out what the numbers are, what the economics of the plan are, right? Well, the problem with that is a lot of people don't like the numbers that are derived from the strategy. So they change the assumptions, change the numbers, but don't change the strategy. And so all of a sudden, you've got a strategy that's unhooked with the numbers, the numbers being revenue. Okay, so it occurred to me that what we needed to do uh, is start out with the numbers first. So the process that that I use in strategic game planning planning is is actually numbers driven. Okay, so it's number. The strategy is a function of the growth numbers that 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 you intend to achieve. Okay, and it's all based on the second bullet is revenue. This is not an income statement, or sorry, net income or or operating margin process. It's based on top line revenue. Why is that? Top line revenue you can't run and hide from. 
Revenue is an expression of how the market feels about what you do, feels about the value that you create, the benefits that you deliver. And so the how answer to the how big is all about top line revenue. And it's all about 24 months. Okay, so what it basically says is, what top line revenues do you intend to achieve in the next 24 months? Okay, it's not a five-year plan. I don't believe in five-year plans because I've never seen the fifth year ever show up. And yet the reality is I've seen a lot of action plans from people that decide to do something in year four. Well, I got to tell you, putting something off to year four is going to kill your business. It'll never grow. What you need to do is you need to be a little myopic in the sense that you want to be looking close in to say, what are the critical things that I need to do now to get the run rate of revenues up? Because if you can't do that, you don't grow. If you don't grow, performance suffers, performance suffers, bad stuff happens. Okay, so this whole first question is exceedingly uh, important, excuse me, because it sets the stage for basically the guts of the strategy. So if you're at a million a year, okay, my question to you is, okay, where do you want to be in 24 months? Do you want to be at 2 million? Do you want to be at 5 million? Do you want to be at 10 million? Now, I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me that a $10 million growth from one, the strategy to get there is a lot different than if you wanted uh, to simply double your revenues from one to 2 million, right? I mean, that's the point of putting the numbers up first. Now, the reality is if you throw a $10 million number up there, um, I'm going to ask you, uh, how are we going to get there? And if you don't say, I don't know how to get there, then we probably don't have a number that's large enough. Let me explain that. I'm a believer that the, that the statement, I don't know, okay, drives innovation and creativity. All right. So if you knew how to deliver your revenue target, then I would suggest that's not a big incentive for you to be creative and innovative, would it? I mean, if you know it, you don't have to innovate. You just walk in a park, you get there. The purpose, how big, is to stretch you. It's to get you to declare a goal that is beyond your fingertips. So you say, Roy, I don't know how to get there. And my question is, okay, the purpose of the planning process is to innovate and create new stuff that will allow you to get there. It's not about trend lines. People say to me, well, you know, if we're at a million and, and I say, well, where do you want to be in 24 months? A lot of times people will say, well, look at if we, if we, if we kept going in the direction that we're going based on the past, then we would probably be able to achieve 1.5 million. And I say, put the trend line down. That's not what we're here to talk about. The answer to the how big question is about what do you want to declare as your revenue goal 24 months out? And it's got diddly squat to do with what you did over the last 24 months, okay? This whole thing is to breathe life into your organization, get creativity going so the engine can grow. And you can't do that with extrapolating trend lines. You can't do that with linear regression analysis. You just can't do it. At least I haven't been able to discover how to do that. So let me repeat, how big? First thing we do, where do you wanna be in terms of top line revenue in 24 months? It has to be bold and audacious. We're not going to use trend lines. I got to tell you, I've had so much fun with this question uh, with, with executive teams because the CEO is sitting in the room, right? 
and I'm pushing them. Okay, you're at a million. Um, I think you should be at five. Can you get five? It's almost like an auction, right? And the CEO says, yeah, I think we can get five. And I say, okay, well, how about 10? <laughs> Let's go for 10. And, and of course, you could just see his eyes just kind of like glaze over and fear takes over and everybody in the room perspires. Okay, the moment people start to perspire, I know we're getting close to the right number. <laughs> if nobody's perspiring, then they know how to get it. That's not the point. Okay. And so this, and the other thing that really works here that I've observed is teamwork. I mean, all of a sudden, everybody in that room knows they have to come to an agreement on what the revenue target is for 24 months because they have to depend on each other to deliver value that's going to get them there. And it's the start of the planning process. All right, Ian, let's go. Now the question is, where are we going to get the money? And so if we chose a $10 million revenue target in the next 24 months, the next question basically says is who do we want to serve, which is another way of saying, where are we going to get the money? Okay. And this is where we get into what traditionally is called, you know, conversation around target markets. I call them customer groups. They're customer groups because they're populated with people, right? People that have unique needs and desires and cravings. And that's what this marketing game now is all about. And so who to serve? Are, are customer groups that we believe have the latent potential to deliver the how big, okay? And so if we selected $10 million and we're sitting at one, the challenge here is to define customer groups that, that we believe have the potential to deliver the extra $9 million, okay? You with me on that? Ideally, we would like to get that revenue from one customer group. Chances are that's probably unrealistic, but why do we want a minimum number of customer groups? Well, it's because we have limited resources. We have limited time and we have limited money. We want to get to those customer groups as fast as we can, as easy as we can, because we got a 24-month plan, right, in order to develop, to, to deliver the $10 million. Okay, so customer groups, have got good potential to give us the 10 million, minimum number, easy to get to, and a short selling cycle. Look at, if we came up with a group of customers that typically would require 18 months to sell, we're looking at the wrong customer groups, right? Because we have a 24-month plan. I mean, we've got to hit the bricks running after 48 hours worth of developing the strategic game plan. So this, this particular part of the uh, of the process is exceedingly important um, because it's going to be uh, determining where we allocate our resources and how much time we spend. The other point I want to make is this process is not about mass markets. Okay. It's about carving up mass markets into very specific and defined groups of customers. That's the strategy. And so, you know, when I, when I see a, a marketing plan that says we're going to go after the, you know, the over 77 demographic, my eyes just glaze over and say, that's a meaningless statement. How are you going to do it? I mean, there's millions and millions of people, right? And so this is about targeting very, very specifically. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, what do we do in terms of uh, once we've identified the who. Ian? Okay, 
how to win. Okay, this is uh, so so far. Let me let me just say we've determined how big we want to be. So we're going to be ten million. Who we want to serve. So we've identified I don't know maybe five or six customer groups very specifically. The next question says how are we going to win? How are we going to compete and win for their business? Ian. Okay, the how to win thing is is an interesting one because as I said earlier, it's this is not a mass market game. It's all about the who. And so those customer groups we've just defined, okay, the how to win answer is based on those specific groups and it is not about the market in general. It's about differentiation. Why should I do business with you? The customer is saying as opposed to your competition. And so the, the whole exercise here is to be really clear on the competitive advantage we have relative to the competition that exists for the WHO customer groups that we've identified we want to serve. Now, you would think that um, that this is an easy process, um, and it it really isn't. I, I was once asked, uh, well, not once, several times, you know, what are the top three challenges in business that I see these days? And my answer was really simple. It's got, the, three, the three biggest challenges are differentiation, differentiation, and differentiation, because I don't believe we're doing a very good job at it. Okay, as a matter of fact, to the last bullet on the slide, I, I actually think in spite of the fact that we've got a highly competitive environment, probably more competitive than it's ever been before. Customers are fickle. They're, un they're yielding unrelenting power. Technology is changing so quickly in spite of that. And you would think that we'd get better at differentiating in that kind of set of circumstances. But in spite of that, uh, I believe that we are actually getting worse. Let me explain why in terms of differentiation. Um, undifferentiation is here. Okay, there's three things going on, and I would just ask that you reflect on what you see when you're on a website, what you read if you read newspapers, what you see when you visit stores. Okay, the first element that I see driving this notion of undifferentiation is copying. Everybody, guys, everybody copies everybody. Everybody, what I call gargles Google. Ian, I just came up with that a few days ago. I thought it was a little bit of alliteration that we needed to introduce into the slides, but it really does point out that when people are presented with a challenge, typically they will go to Google to find out how other people do it. And the problem with that, you know, in a lot of times is they try and copy that. Okay, so copying on the basis of Google is an issue. We all read the, the same books. People all use the same case studies and they benchmark best in class and they benchmark their competition. And so they try and copy what has worked for others. When you're doing that, you're not advancing your own identity. You're not advancing your own uniqueness. You're not advancing what makes you different. You're not advancing what makes you, okay, best in class because you're the only one that does what you do. So the copying piece is huge. And, and look at, if, if you get only one takeaway from this entire hour, okay, please stop gargling Google when it comes to looking for what other people do and incorporating that into your business. I mean, actually, it's you know, one guy wrote, it's a definition of insanity to copy what other people do and expect different results for you.
I mean, it's it's just not an end game that I've ever seen produce uh, a whole lot of benefits. So copying is out. We want to get in into the creative mindset. And that's one of the things that the planning process by setting a revenue target that's bold and audacious, that's one of the things it does. It forces you to not copy. If you're looking for nine additional million dollars and nobody else has ever done that, you're not going to be able to copy anybody, right? You're going to be so conflicted with, I don't know, you're going to have to create a solution to that. And I say, that's the world that we want to be in. Ian, so copying, what's going on? Second thing, come on. I mean, I hope you, I hope this resonates with you guys because it, it's, it's just something that just annoys me so much. And I call it claptrap. Okay. The use of, of expressions and declarations that leverage words like we are better. We're the best. We're number one. We are the leader. We offer premium. Okay. The use of those words to describe and define your competitive advantage. The use is meaningless. They don't mean anything other than your view of yourself. To a customer that wants to understand why they should buy from you and not your competitor, by you saying you're better, by you saying you're best, by you saying you're number one, by you saying you're a leader, that's just another way of saying, this is what I think of myself, right? And it has no basis for comparison. And so here's a couple of examples that I pulled out. You know, I've seen universal uh, selling propositions that say the smartest way to get around. Okay, that could be a whole bunch of transportation companies, couldn't it? Another one says the simplest path to customer delight. Like who judges what's simple or not? I'll tell you who judges the company. That's their view of themselves. Who judges who's the smartest, who creates the smartest way around? Who's the author of that? It's the company. And how about this one? Canada's largest and most reliable 5G network. That's actually a competitive claim put out by a very major telecom uh, supplier in Canada. And again, it's argumentative as heck. So the claptrap notion of using these kinds of expressions is is not just uh, argumentative. I think it borders on intellectual dishonesty, quite frankly. So we got copying going on that's creating undifferentiation. We got the use of claptrap going on that's creating undifferentiation. Go in, we got one, a couple more categories. And we've got helium-filled statements and aspirations driving this clutter of statements out there that really doesn't answer the question, why should I do business with you as opposed to your competition? And here's some examples. This company says... We're in business to save our home planet. That's their competitive claim. We're in business to save our home planet. Now, I'm not saying that that's, that's not a worthwhile statement and I applaud it, but it's not a competitive claim. It's probably a value statement in the business, right? That makes sense for them. But to, but to actually take that and claim that you should do business with me because I'm in the business to save the home planet. What makes you unique? Because I can give you 150,000 other companies out there that claim the same thing. Not only that, I don't know how the hell to measure that. How do you measure whether it's truthful or not? Same with the last one. This is an airlines in the U.S. They say they're here to inspire humanity, both in the air and on the ground. Okay, enough said. Aspirations, claptrap, they are so far from ground zero 
to help customers. It's unbelievable. And the last one, I'll just say the fourth sort of nail in the undifferentiation coffin here is narcissism at its best. Competitive claims out there today are merely an organization's view of themselves. Without any comparison with the buying options that customers have, in other words, answering the question, why should I do business with you and not your competition? And there's a real confusion here between what you think in terms of values that you should have on the inside with what kind of unique value you're going to declare on the outside. And okay, so that's really part of the narcissism bucket. So look at uh We've got copying, we've got claptrap, we've got aspirations, and we've got narcissism, unfortunately, driving the differentiation world in the opposite direction to where it should be to be really helpful to customers. What's the solution? So I had to come up with this uh, uh, this solution, which I call, you really need to be the only one who does what you do. You You can't be better, you can't be best. You need to be the only one. Okay, Ian. So let's let's un, unpack that a bit. Okay. The only one is all about being the only ones who do what you do. Now, the form of the only statement, and that's what I call it, is the only statement. The form of that is we are the only ones who. Now, let's just think about that. It's not that we are the best ones that, or we're or it's we're not we we are number one in the world of of, of internet technology. It's none of that. It's a declaration of our uniqueness that takes the form of we're the only ones who do what we do. Okay. So how do we go about this? Let me just quickly uh, step you through uh, the, the, the process. By the way, just a couple of more words on the only statement. The reason it's so powerful is that it's binary and it can be observed and, and, and proven. When you say to a client, uh, you should come with me because I'm the, we are the only ones who, and I'm going to take you to a, a case study in a few minutes. That's pretty power, powerful. Uh, that declares your uniqueness in granular terms that makes sense. You're not saying that, you know, you should buy with, with me because we're here. I'm here to save the home planet. You're going to talk to something a little more specific, really specific. And that's the power of the only statement. So how do you go about doing it? Well, the first thing is you need to target. You need to talk to a very specific group of people. That's why we created the who to serve answer, right? So when we when we unfolded the strategic game planning process, we decided we're going to get 9 million. We've identified three or four customer groups that we think have the potential to give us the 9 million extra dollars. Um, and now what we need to do is we need to take a deep dive in each of those groups, who groups, let's call them, to define what they care about. Now, this is critical. Okay, this piece of work, if we don't do it right, we're going to have a whole, really difficult time trying to nail down what our, what our only statement is. And so if you have three who groups, what you need to do is take a deep, deep dive and find out what they care about, not what they need but what they care about, what they covet, what they crave, what they lust for. And there's a reason for that. Because all those words I just used are emotional words. They're intended, when you satisfy them, they're intended to appeal to the right side of the client's brain. 
because they buy on that side for one thing, right? They need an internet service. Okay. But there's a million people out there that provide it and tends to have the same features and benefits tends to be price competitive. Okay. And so competing in that space is going to be rather difficult. So the whole idea here is reframe the marketing challenge and build it around what your who group cares about. Because when you play into the caring space, first of all, I mean, it just blows people away. Secondly, they tend to be willing to pay higher prices for what they care about. And the amount of competition in that space is rather limited because nobody's playing in it. Okay, so I wouldn't say it's uncontested, but it's a heck of a lot less contested than, than you would normally expect, okay? So define your who, drill down, spend lots of time figuring out what they care about. Now, once you've done that, now it's time to start uh, figuring out what your only statement might be. Now, it might be that you come, you're confronted head on with the fact that you're not particularly unique in providing what they care about, right? That happens with a lot of a lot of organizations. They say to me, well, okay, Roy, we've done the caring work, but there's a lot of people that play into that. Well, first of all, it may be a bit of an overstatement. And so we spend a lot more time making sure that we got the answer to what they care about really true and right. And we get we get a, we make a lot of improvements on that. Okay. You need to be the only one that does what you do. And there's a, there's a way that I'm going to talk about measurement. Okay. But once you, as I say, once you have it, take a deep dive in terms of what people care about. I don't care about what you think about yourself. That's not what this is. It's what do you do to satisfy what the who craves? Make sure you get that right. Then take a look at your capabilities, create and draft your only statement, right? And as I said earlier, it might be that you don't have all of the skills and tools at your disposal to deliver what they care about. And you're going to have to, what I call, reframe your business. Let me come back to that in a moment, okay? Because that happens a few times. So target, figure out what the who, take a deep dive, draft your only statement. And I want to tell you right now, it will always be a draft. 